0: Natural MD Radio, your place to hear the whole truth on health and medicine for women and children and get the tools you need to take back your health naturally starting now. I'm Dr. Aviva Ron. A recent New York Times article that I read was actually beyond disturbing. It was really upsetting. It described the use of psychiatric drugs in kids under two years old. And the data showed that as many as 180-something thousand kids under two were taking some form of mood stabilizer or psychiatric medication. And some critique came back about the article saying, well, a lot of that is for kids who are using these medications for seizure because some of the same medications for mood stabilization are used for seizure. But in fact, 83,000 of the prescriptions for medication for these kids under two were actually Prozac. Joining me today is my guest, friend and colleague, Lawrence Rosen, or Larry, as he's known to us, who is an integrative pediatrician. I really want to say he's a pioneering integrative pediatrician and founder of the Whole Child Center. Larry is the author of Treatment Alternatives for Children, an evidence-based guide for parents interested in natural solutions for common childhood ailments. Dr. Rosen is appointed as clinical assistant professor in pediatrics at New Jersey Medical School and serves as medical advisor to the Deidra Imus Environmental Center in Hackensack. Additionally, he is a founding member and former chair of the American Academy of Pediatrics section on integrative medicine and he received the AAP's Pioneer in Integrative Medicine Award in 2015. A graduate of New York Medical College and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, he completed his residency and chief residency in pediatrics at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. Dr. Rosen serves on many integrative health advisory boards, including Kula for Karma, Happy Families, the Holistic Moms Network, integrativepractitioner.com and Marble Jam Kids. He's the pediatric columnist for Kiwi Magazine and contributes regularly to Huffington Post and Mind Body Green. Most importantly, he is happily married to the love of his life for over 20 years and the proud father of two amazing children. So you're a real doctor, right, Larry? You you did all the real stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining me, Larry, after a busy day in your practice, no less.
1: Uh, well, thank you for having me. I, uh, I look forward to our conversation.
0: So Larry, what's going on with kids? What's going on with pediatric prescribing? These are really alarming statistics.
1: Uh, I know. And when I hear you read them, it's just, you know, I, and I read the same articles. It's just mind boggling that we're talking about you know, hundreds of thousands of prescriptions a year for kids under the age of two years old. And I'm not, um, you know, like you, I'm not an anti-medicine person, but when you hear this or the fact that something like 10,000 prescriptions a year for kids two to three for ADHD, um, you know, something is really, really, really wrong with what's going on in our society. And I, I just, I feel like we're, we're seeing so many kids suffer.
0: You know, 20 about, what was it? Yeah. Almost 20 years ago, my husband, Tracy, who, you know, who at the time was a high school mm-hmm. principal and I wrote a book on ADHD, it's called ADHD Alternatives. And at that time, what inspired us to write the book was that Tracy was, and he has a doctorate in education, he was visiting another school and he was going to have a meeting with this other school's principal. So while he was waiting for the meeting, he was in the main office and there was a nurse and it was lunchtime. She was handing out medications and they started chatting. And this, it was a high school. And the nurse said she spent four hours a day handing out behavioral meds to kids. You know, and we wrote this book. So many years ago, our opinion was that there was a tremendous amount of overdiagnosis and over-medication. But I have to say, you know, my, my opinion has shifted a little bit in that I think there is a tremendous amount of overdiagnosis and over-medication. But I also think something's going on with our kids. I'm watching kids come into my practice day after day, unable to sit still, suffering with allergies, all kinds yep. of autoimmune uh, behavioral conditions. What do you think is sort of first d- just discussing that issue of sort of overdiagnosis and over medication, as well as what's going on with our kids?
1: I think you raise a really important point is that it may, it is likely that we're talking about two things that are true. One is that in some cases, uh, there's an indiscriminate use of a tool, which is a medication to control behavior. And in some parts of the country, it is likely that medication is being underutilized for kids who really have a distinct need but don't have access. And then a third part of that, which you raised, is there is really something going on and kids really are suffering more. I guess the debate that, that I would see is what are the, you know, what are the root causes of that? And are we really addressing those issues in a way that is going to help these kids live, you know, happier, more fruitful lives long term? So that's that's really the issue. And you know, when you get to that, and you, if you ask kids, they will tell you they are suffering. There there have been some recent reports from the American Psychological Association um, looking at the kids report stress, and something like over three quarters report moderate or severe stress in the past school year. That's a huge number of kids who are stressed out. And unfortunately, their coping skills tend to be things like playing video games or surfing the internet versus other things we can talk about. And then a more recent survey out of NYU, um, which was specifically looking at school stress, found that something like half of these kids, I think they were in 11th grade, so they're dealing with college applications and all this other stuff, half of them were experiencing a a really major amount of stress on a daily basis. And they, you know, they they blame schoolwork and college application process and all that stuff. So kids really, really are suffering, and they're looking for our help. And there, there are a number of different reasons for that. I think.
0: So it's really complicated. So if you have your, we're we're both parents. We have six kids between us. What advice would you give to parents as a pediatrician, or do you give? Because you're you're doing this all day long. When you have a parent who is unsure, you have a parent who is educated enough to question over-medication, but also wondering if maybe there is something going on with their kid, are they just being a kid? What's, how do you help parents in your practice sort through, maybe the teacher said, I think your kid needs medication, how does the parent for themselves make that discrimination
1: Right. So, so the two trigger points, the things you brought up, one is sometimes it's the parent or parents or grandparents or someone saying, yeah, you know, I'm getting the sense, you know, he's not like my other kids or I just have an intuitive sense something's not right with how he's coping. Or they'll come and say, the school told me I really need to talk to you. We're doing okay at home. Um, but he's really, you know, he's not doing his work or he's really suffering and he's he's spacing out. Even in some cases, the teachers will say, you know, I really think you should talk to your doctor about medication and other things. And so whenever, which, wherever it's coming from, um, also in our practices, we have a biased sample of families who really are less likely to seek out medication as a first option. So they're often coming to us and saying, you know, What else can we do? What else should we be looking at? And I always tell them, look, we have to start from the beginning and the evaluation process, whatever that's going to be, has to take at least as long as the treatment process. So we're going to have to gather a lot of information. We're going to have to talk about home and friends and extended family and the environment at home and at school, um, cultural factors um, things like diet and exercise and uh, and on and on and on. all these all these vast array of multi levels of environmental factors. We have to spend a lot of time looking at that, and then starting to look at some potential underlying root biological causes. You know, really more from a functional medicine perspective. You know, fine tuning and saying, okay, well, this this you know, dialogue that we're having is really helpful, and probably about ninety percent of the time. We can get started with just the information swapping back and forth, but then looking at you know certain lab tests or other evaluation processes, questionnaires, things like that. Um, going to the school, going to the teacher—it's—it's it's hard. It's hard for a lot of docs who are in primary care practice to also coordinate and manage this because you're getting information from family, multiple family members, from the child if they're old enough, from the teachers, coaches, from from a lot of you know a lot of different sources. You have to go through all this information and spend time with the family to do that. But if you take the time and if you do that, I would say for me, that's 99% of the, of the battle there. And then ultimately, the solutions, which are multifactorial, multidisciplinary, they're integrative, they kind of unfold from that and it becomes more natural. But I think the key thing is being able to create the space and the time to do a really proper evaluation
0: one of the um factors that i have really just been astonished to see how much it can make a difference is doing an elimination diet and it's not a one size fits all and there are a lot of reasons that kids have behavioral and emotional challenges and i think you know i think a lot of it is is just societal pressures and we're living in a scary time for kids but um, I have actually seen elimination diets for quite a number of kids make a difference, particularly around ADHD, anxiety, focus, uh, concentration, things like that. How about you? What have you seen with that?
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. I think that, um, you know, in this big concept of food, right, and how, what impact that has on mood and anxiety, and if you think about it, like if we're... If we're eating things that don't agree with us, and I always use the example of it's not necessarily just an allergy. Uh, there are a lot of sensitivities and other things that we may eat something and feel really unfocused or cloudy or foggy or bloated or just kind of bad that night or the next day. We, I think all of us have had that experience. So imagine you're a kid and you have to sit still for six hours in school and you're constantly eating stuff that's not agreeing with you or you know artificial sweeteners or tons of sugars or other things, and this is not when you bring up the elimination diet, the challenge is to figure out what is right for each individual kid. So that's the best way to do it because it's not that all kids become hyperactive on sugar or all kids can't have gluten. It's nothing like that. But in order to figure that out, you know, what role does food play? Even just as simple as, are you eating breakfast? Are you getting protein at breakfast? Or like a lot of kids are having pure carbs or sugars and their fuel runs out after the first 30 minutes and they get to school and they're just fatigued and zoned out. There's no recess anymore. They're having really little phys ed. They're probably not sleeping as well as night. It's a really big setup for disaster. And yet we don't spend a lot of time going through that. So I, I absolutely will use elimination diets as one way to diagnose, if we, you will, what the problem is, because as you know and you and I have talked about this there are limitations to the testing a lot of times parents will say well i want you to do a test to show me you know she she can have gluten or she can't have gluten and i'll spend a lot of time explaining we can do certain tests but at the end of the day what i really want to know for your daughter is if she's eating a certain food is that the issue and the only way i'm going to know that is taking it out and that's that's hard what we're asking parents to do is hard work it's it's much harder for the kids and the parents Change their diet and their sleep patterns and their exercise than to prescribe a pill. And that, I think, gets to the crux of sort of culturally, societally. You know, we've made it um, much more easy for parents to kind of come in and say, here's a quick fix solution. That's the way our healthcare system works. But um, I, I don't know. I see more and more parents that are willing and the kids willing to do the hard work and they see that it works.
0: It's it's really tough. You were saying the statistic about about 75% of kids in that one study said that they were experiencing some distress. And it's interesting because the corollary number for adults, as I'm working on my book on stress and overwhelm and the impact on health, is about 75% of Americans, adults, feel chronically overwhelmed. So you've got overwhelmed parents, stressed mm-hmm. out kids, and and nobody really kind of knows what to do to to cope. One of the things that you mentioned is that doing an elimination diet is hard because you have to really figure out what's right for that child and you have to take the time to figure out what the food is. But you said something earlier that I think was also really important is, um, is that it has to be right and it has to be individualized. And in my experience is the way to do that is you actually have to stop long enough to pay attention to how you feel. So part of it's taking the foods mm-hmm. out, but then part of it is finding that mindful space where when you're introducing certain foods back or you're taking other foods out, mom, dad, and the children or the child are, are having enough kind of bandwidth in their life to notice whether there are changes. So, Larry, that kind of brings me to the topic of mindfulness, which I know is really near and dear to your heart. So we have to be mindful to do an elimination diet, we have to be mindful to even know how we're feeling so that we can express it. What are some of the tools that you use, mindfulness I know is one of them, uh, for, for helping kids who are struggling with, let's say, anxiety or depression?
1: Yes, yeah, Yeah. I, I would say so. When we get to the point where we're starting to talk about solutions, Um, I take a really broad view and I have this concept um, that's you know we we use prescriptions but the prescriptions aren't necessarily medications I will prescribe things like specific foods or types of activity or rest or getting outside in nature and so mindfulness is a catch-all term that um, you know it's become a little bit of a buzzword but I think when we really dial down and say it's what you said just taking the space to pay attention to what you are doing at the moment you're doing it. And there are a number of tools that I use in my practice to help kids, depending on the age that they are. It's very different. You know, it's interesting. Kids that are young, if they're three years old, four years old, they're very mindful. They're very present. They are just about what is going on in that moment. And actually, as parents with, the, with those age kids, I, I encourage them from birth. I said, pay attention to your babies and your kids. They will teach you what mindfulness looks like. But about five years old, things start to change. And that's a point where we, you know, as as humans, we start to think forward and we start to think backwards and we start to consider what we did before and spend some time ruminating about that. And we start to think about what we're going to be doing. And that's about, you know, that's consciousness developing and that's, you know, that's That's positive development in some ways, but I also think it's a bit of a curse. And then we spend the rest of our lives trying to figure out how to get back to that that point. Um, And so specifically, the kinds of tools I use with young kids could be very simple breath work: just lying on your back or sitting up, putting your hand on your belly or taking a little object or stuffed animal, putting it on your belly and watching it rise and fall with each breath, and just teaching them in the moment to be aware of their breath. And it's cool because then they realize, like, oh yeah, like I'm breathing, and that's something I don't usually think about, and I actually have control over that, which is a pretty neat thing to to recognize and realize. And it's really simple. And they have it wherever they are. They have their breath with them when they're home or they're at school or they're playing sports. And then you kind of got to figure out what motivates them to practice it. And I'll I'll tell the parents specifically, you know, let. This isn't homework. This isn't something you're going to nag your kids about. They have to just find a way every day to, to practice this. Uh, you can role model for them, and it's great for you to learn these skills too. But just spending the time every day practicing some breathing at times you're not specifically stressed out. If the only time you're doing these skills is when you're really revved up and, and stressed out, you're going to get really frustrated. It's going to be really hard. You need to do it, you know, even five minutes a day you know, going to sleep or at a calm moment, just to practice what it's like and have it become like any other automated behavior, you know, just what you do. And so that you're paying attention to your breath or taking everyday moments like brushing your teeth, eating breakfast, you know, drinking a glass of water, you know, folding the laundry that, you know, that's more for us than our kids, maybe or for older kids, but whatever these daily activities they have are, just Paying attention to what we're doing at the moment. And then there are more formal practices as kids get older. I'll do some work with guided imagery so that we're working on breathing, but we're also using their, their really amazing imaginations to develop stories in their head that they make up about, could be places they find relaxing or uh, or interesting, and narrating this very visual story and helping them build up these stories or, or images in their head using that we make up together. So it's, it's very personalized and interactive. Um, I do uh, get into meditation work with older kids, which is a little more uh, abstract and a little deeper. Um, but I find a number of teens now know what it is and are interested in it. Um, there's some really great resources for that. And then yoga brings in the mindfulness approach with more physical activity. And that's something that kids of all ages, from very young to, to teens and young adults, obviously. Um, get into, and that the physical aspect of it um, makes it sort of more more accessible for kids. And there are a whole host of contemplative practices. There's actually um, a really neat graphic that I use in talks. I show parents from the Center for the Contemplative Mind in Society. They have a website, I think, which is the org, and they've got a tree of contemplative practices, and they have this tree with all these branches and roots with many, many different ways of really cultivating mindfulness or contemplation, ranging from physical activities, martial arts, um, yoga, to, to prayer and more spiritual things. And so a whole range of different things that people can pick up. And everybody just has to find out, you know, find out what it is for themselves. So I try to work with the kids to, to isolate that thing that really speaks to them.
0: I love it. And it's great. These things like meditation and yoga, which we were doing 30 years ago, used to be kind of weird, but they're pretty mainstream now. So it's not like kids are going to say, oh, that's weird or crunchy. In fact, a lot of high schools from an article that you had sent me, Larry, are uh, showing that they're integrating meditation into schools. In fact, one um, school in Marblehead, Mass, actually has created the Zen room where kids can go and meditate, which is wonderful.
1: Yeah, yeah, that, um, it's really great to see a n- the number of schools and school systems. Uh, and this is really led in, in many cases by teachers that are in the schools. Uh, and so, you know, it's interesting, and I think you and, and Tracy and I have talked about this, this, this mixture, this sort of cross-section from education and health, where we're coming together, where do kids spend most of their time in school, and what do they identify as the most stressful things affecting them in life, often school-related things. So if we can um, help teachers bring that into the school system, then that's a really powerful lesson. There's um, a pediatrician, uh, Zhang Vo, who's um, written a book about uh, mindful teen, I think is the title. Um, I think he's also quoted in the CNN piece, uh, who's really helping a lot of schools do this and gives tools for, for teenagers and adolescents particularly, uh, but it's there's so many easy ways to integrate yoga and meditation into the school day. And I know in some places, um, you know, you mentioned like 30 years ago it was weird. There are still pockets in areas of the country where uh, yoga and meditation are seen as religious uh, or, or spiritual in a way that's threatening to um, certain groups of people and certain religions. And they see it as interfering with their own, you know, religious you know, Judeo-Christian background, if you will. Um, and so that's not the way it's taught, most likely. And there's a lot of myth, I think, and we have to break down these these myths. But I think the schools that integrate these kinds of programs see not only are the kids uh, less anxious, less depressed, they see reductions in rates of missed days of school. Um, they also see better performance which is not surprising to me, but if that's the motivating factor for school, you know, or for certain groups of parents who say, you know, we don't want our kids spending valuable learning time practicing things like yoga, I think we can make a we're starting to be able to make a clear point from the research that cognitively they're much more available to learn and they're much more, much more effective. And you know, I, I don't personally think that should be the most important thing, but that is a selling point if someone's working in a very skeptical district.
0: Well, it can also be very motivating for kids, especially if they are struggling in school. And it's not just kids who are more academically challenged. Sometimes it's some of the kids that are highly successful in schools that are the most at risk for really struggling emotionally or even diving pretty deep into depression. And, you know, we've all heard the really sad stories in the news about the valedictorian who suicided, And we know that that is a really high-risk population also. So I think the positive is letting kids know that not only can they feel better, but they can do better in school in less time when their minds are more relaxed is powerful. And then I think for the school districts and the regions where um, yoga and meditation may be seen as contrary to whatever the abiding religious belief is, we do know that actually... Many kinds of prayerful behavior replicate some of the internal neurologic changes that meditation also can bring about. So prayer can also be used for families that may be listening that are not comfortable with yoga and meditation, but relaxed prayer, not like supplicative prayer, but really relaxed prayerful gratitude moments create some of that neurologic calm.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. You also touched on something that reminded me about, you know, when we talk about sometimes it's the it's the achieving kids um, who get most stressed out. Um, you know, I was reminded I, I I had written an article on school stress, and I was talking a lot about the college application process and test taking, and um, commenting on on the films and books like Race to Nowhere and uh, Beyond Measure, and uh, and these are really valid points, and those tend to be. Uh, a lot of the issues I see in the area where I practice, but a couple of people wrote in and reminded me that that's a privileged position, and and it's not it's not that it invalidates it, but that there are kids whose stress in their life is feeling safe walking to school, worrying they're going to be shot, you know, or they're going to go home and a, a parent is going to beat them, or their or their parent, the other parent, there's there's domestic violence, there's you know, a lot of food scarcity. And so I, you know, I, it reminded me, um, that whatever the stressors are, um, a lot of the same tools can be used. The access to them and, and the, you know, the sort of access to these integrative therapies can be difficult. Um, there are, um, more and more, communities that are, you know, even in poor communities that are looking into ways to to integrate some of these therapies. And sometimes they come through faith-based organizations or through the schools. Um, But it's just, it was just a reminder for myself that sometimes I, you know, I feel like I don't, I don't pay as much attention to that as I should.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I actually grew up in a housing project in New York City. And when I was in medical residency, sometimes I would hear medical residents talk about some of our patient population and say, oh, well, if, if, this certain demographic would just do this or do that. And I think what what my childhood experience was and that is growing up in the environment that I grew up in is there's a sort of internalized lack of self-efficacy in that you don't necessarily in that environment believe that you can have an impact on anything. So showing kids that they can have an impact on their heart rate or their emotional inner state can be such a powerful thing when you can't necessarily control the world around you. But, you know, it's sort of that classic saying you can't control, um, stress, but you can control how you respond to it. And I think that's a powerful thing that all kids can actually, we can, all of us, not just kids can, can take home as a message.
1: Yeah. It's about power and control. And it turns out that, a lot of these methods we're talking about are among the most not only safe and effective, but cost-effective remedies that that are portable and don't require a lot of money or expense. So just ties into that.
0: Yeah, I was just looking at the article uh, that you had sent to me, and there was a whole uh, area of schools in Massachusetts that was able to institute full meditation programs in the high schools and the cost was like $16,000. They were able to get a local grant for it and that's really very reasonable. I'm sure there's a high school gym equipment that costs more than that or something. So one of the things I want to circle back around to is how do you advise parents in your practice when they are struggling with a child who really is having challenges coping whether that be with school their emotions and the parents are faced with how long do we wait before we do a medication like how long can we try interventions for and you know i think with teenagers it's particularly hard because there's a lot of behavior that we sort of chalk up to well that's just normal teenage behavior or that they're dressing a certain way and they're in their room kind of locked in there with their headphones on versus When should we actually intervene at a more serious level? Should we even try natural therapies? Do we go right to a medication? Um, Should they never think about doing a medication? What are your thoughts on this whole realm of questioning that parents go through, especially if they're more educated about the risks of medications?
1: So for me, uh, a lot of that depends on are we in a crisis situation or not. you know, I I think most of us prefer when um, things are identified earlier and we have time. So if I have a, a parent of a first grader who said, yeah, you know, he's six or seven years old and he's, eh, you know, he's doing fine in school, but the teacher thinks he may have ADHD because he can't pay attention, but at home there's no behavioral problems. That's a very different discussion than my 13-year-old is cutting herself and she's Anorexic, and we're really worried she's down to, you know, 79 pounds and she doesn't leave the house. So, those are two really wide extremes. And I would say that, um, as great a believer as I am in um, a, a holistic approach, that latter case with the girl, that girl needs to see a therapist and a psychiatrist to really, you know, I think the standard of care is to have a full, doesn't mean I'm going to abandon them. It doesn't mean we're not going to work. And, and I would argue that whenever medication is considered, if it's done in the absence of all of these environmental approaches, then it is, it is that's never the right solution. So everything else needs to be addressed, the family life, the school life, the social life, um, substance abuse, eating, all of that has to be addressed. But there are times where kids are, are, are struggling so mightily with depression or obsessive-compulsive disorder, mood disorders, suicidality. They really need to be well plugged in. Um, and so that's part of it. I think, of course, it's all of the kids in the middle that are most of the kids we're seeing. And it's like, when do you cross that road? So if I feel that we're not in a crisis mode and we have some time – Um, And the family and the child are really engaged with me. Then we're going to spend some time and do a thorough evaluation and really talk about the options. And some people have more tolerance than others. Some some people and some kids they'll say, "Well, you know, she's only in fourth grade, and we feel like we want to really give this the year, the school year, to work on sleep and diet and exercise and yoga uh, and some you know look at specific." Um, nutritional supplementation, and, and again, work on our diet and do these other things. Uh, there may be selective herbals or amino acid products or other things that could be useful. Let's deal with you know whatever the underlying stuff is and give that some time. And then it's very important to have a follow-up plan with regular checkups, not to say, do this and I'll see you in six months. I think that's a recipe for disaster because either they will give up on it after three days and you won't hear back from them. You know, or just other bad things will happen. So, I will often set up a follow up, either a week later or a month later, and that could be a phone call, that could be, um, you know, a a video chat, that could be an office visit. However, that needs to be, Um, we make sure we have regular connection and communication. By the way, if we, you know, if we do that, and and the parents and I and the kids, we tend to sort of have a game plan and a plan B, and we say, look. This is what we're looking for. This is what success looks like. What are you going to measure and monitor at home and at school? Are they behavioral mo- measures? Are they cognitive measures? Are they, are, are they related to anxiety or mood or headaches or stomach aches? Have a clear way of keeping track of that. And I think any child who can should keep their own diary and their own log because, again, it's about feeling control over yourself. Um, and so we do that. We review that. But if we get to a point where there's really not a significant shift, we've already started to lay the groundwork, the trust, the belief, and so that when the parents come back and they say, okay, what's, what's next, and I start to talk about medication, it's not the first thing we talked about. We're doing it in a very uh, mindful way. Uh, we've developed a relationship and trust. And so that when I say to them, look, in, you know, I really think at this point, we're doing him a disservice by not considering medication, very rarely will parents say, well, I, I just I, I, I won't do that at any cost, doesn't matter what. That's, that's pretty rare because we all want the same thing for, for the child. Everybody wants him or her to feel better. Um, and so there are more or less resistant people, and I do have those families that walk through the door and, and say, well, you know, first step, we want to do medication, and, and we have a conversation about that. But when they finally get to that point, I'm able to work with them, communicate, and have that same level of communication and trust so that when the kids are starting on medication, uh, whether it's with me or, or another um, type of practitioner, you know the family feels like they're connected. And I honestly think it reduces the risk. I don't know how to say this the right way. Probably, not, I wouldn't say the risk of side effects, but the awareness about them and it, it, it definitely creates a more successful medication treatment plan because, again, one of the worst things I think you can do is to say, here's your prescription and I'll see you in six months. And if things start to develop and, and you know there's a, there's a headache or a missed meal or something, then that becomes something the parents stop and never come back and see you again. So one of the things that has to be consistent is communication no matter, no matter what you do.
0: Larry, how do you recommend families find a physician in their community? I mean, we, a lot of families are living in sort of integrative pediatric deserts. What are some of the resources you might recommend for families to look into? I know it's a tough one, but...
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's something that um, I, so I'll, um, and I'm sure you get too. You know, those of us in the field get calls from all over the world and all over the country, and it's not really practical, um, for us to see, you know, people coming from 3,000 miles away, um, and so one resource that we've developed is um, through the American Academy of Pediatrics, or the AAP. Um, there is a physician finder. It's really, it's not even specific to the integrative section. It's just part of the AAP consumer site. Um, It might be healthychildren.org. I can't remember. I think that's the website. But you can search for a pediatrician in your area, and you can specify by specialty. So you could look for a neurologist. You could look for a cardiologist. And there is a heading for integrative medicine. Um, And so it used to be listed under complementary and integrative medicine, so it might still be listed that way. But you can add that to your search tool. You can search by zip code or by state. And there are probably about 200 self-identified integrated pediatricians on this list. So it's not comprehensive, but it does cover most states in the country. Um, Also, there are a few parent support groups like uh, Kiwi Magazine has something called the Moms Meet group, which is online. And these are chapters in many different uh, municipalities throughout the country, Who um, parents who use integrative Care, and so they could be good resources. And the Holistic Moms Network is another national network that uh, has parents who tend to use more integrative care, so using parent networks. Uh, it's my vision and dream to make this much easier for families, and so we're, we're starting to think about, a number of us, a way to develop a, a, a robust website, part of which would be information for families including how to find practitioners. So, I agree we need to do a better job, but those are the resources that I can think of right now.
0: Yeah, it's one of the most frequent questions I get is how do I find an integrative pediatrician? How do I find a doctor like you in my town, Dr. Ram, and it's really tough and I <laughs> I have done some you know, I have done some distance consults with people because there's they just can't find somebody, but with kids and mental and behavioral health, I really need to see the family. So, Speaking of families, I would like to end with an uh, acknowledgement that you and I have both raised teenagers. We have uh, teenagers and young adults um, between us. And um, it's hard. It's hard being a parent. And we see the intense emotional inner struggles that parents go through. I mean, whenever something's going on with our own kids, I think as parents, we... Take it personally. We want our kids to be happy. There's this expression: "You're only as happy as your unhappiest child." So, what words of wisdom, or support, or nourishment might you have for families who are in this difficult time of making tough decisions about their kids, going through tough experiences with their kids? How can they? How can they cope?
1: So glad you asked that question. Um... You know, and I, I think nothing, what, what you said about you're only as happiest as your, your least happy child is so true. And I think that for me, one of the greatest um, sort of crucibles I faced as a pediatrician was counseling parents, knowing that I am not a perfect parent myself, and I'm not a perfect human being. And our jobs, your job and my job, is to give advice to parents about parenting and about life and about kids. We're, we're put up there as authorities. And I think I sort of got stuck at one point in my career. It wasn't that long ago. Um, but on this idea that I can only be an effective counselor for parents if I'm the role model, if I'm the, the perfect parent, if you will. And having teenagers cured me of that. Um, and by that I mean um, until you you know you you go through uh, and every you know look every parent has challenges with kids every age and some of us are more fortunate than others and everybody you know we can all think of worse stories um, but I would say that for me um, dealing with whatever struggles I've had you know and I'll just say from my perspective as a parent parenting teenagers um, it taught me that. I am actually probably better equipped to be with parents in the room talking about these really, really, really hard times and difficult conversations because I've gone through some of that on my own. And I, I, and I, it took me a while and it's been, it's been a lot of meditation and a lot of yoga uh, to try to <laughs> come to that place where I feel like authentically I can now get it and understand and be with them. And that actually probably makes me a, a better um, person to just be in the room. And so the advice I would give for parents is to say, look, we're all in this together. There is, there is always someone else out there who can feel your pain and, and understand and has gone through similar things. It's really important to not isolate Because it's easy enough to feel alone, but if you're really alone, and you could be a single parent uh, who's struggling just to make ends meet, it's really, really easy to feel hopeless and helpless. And that's a really challenging place to be. And so understand there are networks and resources. You have to find somebody in your life that you can connect to. Make as many personal connections as you can even if it feels hard to just get out of bed do that try to reach out try to find a um, whether it's a therapist or a a pediatrician or a family doctor or a nurse or someone in your life it could be a friend anyone who who can really hold space for you and be with you and and don't isolate I think that's really really important reach out there are a number of support groups like I said uh, and I think hopefully you can find a uh, an empathic healthcare person to work with, um, and start to get the help. And because we need to, we need to be role models for our kids—not to be perfect, but to take care of ourselves and 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 know that for our kids, no matter you know, no matter how much they're struggling, things can be going really, really well at, at the office and at work, uh, and in so many other ways. But if you have a child who's struggling, That takes over your whole life and your whole day and your whole mindset, and so you need to you need to do that. You also need to recognize that. um, I would say this. You know, this this also comes from one of my really dear yoga teachers, Ben, who um, will say, you know, whatever the whatever the moment, whatever you're experiencing right now, whatever, if it's the happiest moment, um, if it's let's start this way, if it's the worst moment of your life, if you wait it will pass and you will move on to another moment. And if it's the happiest moment of your life, if you wait, it will pass and you will move on to another moment. And so there's always, you know, something else comes next. Um, I would really encourage everybody to find some kind of way to maintain presence and and mindfulness and balance and equanimity. Um, But no one's perfect. We're all in it together.
0: It's so beautiful, Larry. I think there's so much pressure on parents and especially moms, if you don't mind my saying, to be perfect. And it's so uh, interesting to me that I have found, not just as a medical doctor mom, but also just getting together with other friends, particularly when my kids were young or my kids were teenagers, and just sharing, you know, wow, I just had a really crappy experience with one of my kids, or I'm really stressed out or, or I'm not actually even liking being a mom right now because it's just so hard. And it's amazing when one person breaks the silence and just shares what's going on. It's actually an incredible relief for that person who's able to do it, but I think it's like it's like the elephant in the room for every other parent who is in some way or another going to or has been or is struggling with some aspect of being a parent in this society. It's so hard.
1: Amen. I mean, you know, and I think I I probably spend half of every day when I'm in the room, and it is mostly moms, just basically saying, it's okay to feel the way you feel. Parenting is really freaking hard. And I can see, you know, you are doing the best that you can. And that is all that anyone can do. And then you just There's those just joining, and and they kind of sometimes they cry, sometimes people relax, sometimes they laugh, but it's like this moment where you acknowledge like it's not all fun and games, and if you went into it believing that, then you're gonna really, you know, have to shift your perspective, and and that's okay. And there's so many yes, there are so many wonderful joyous moments too, but those are easy to talk about. And that's all, you know, that's all anyone posts on Facebook. So you can easily check that out and, you know, feel really good about life <laughs> then. But but the, the real like day-to-day, minute-to-minute hard things, you know, I think we really, we have to acknowledge to each other and, and hold space for each other to do that.
0: Well, Larry, thank you for all the space that you hold for the families, not just in your practice, but for the work that you have done in the American Academy of Pediatrics to teach pediatricians to hold space for families, to bring a more integrative whole child perspective to our world. I'm so appreciative of what you do and thank you for joining me tonight.
1: Ah, It's it's great. And thank you for, for having me.
0: My pleasure. Tell families how they can get your book and how they can reach you.
1: So my book is Treatment Alternatives for Children, and um, you can get it online, Amazon, BarnesandNoble.com, indy Wire, all the usual places. And it's a really, it's just a very practical guide for, like, the top 100 things we see in practice for, uh, it provides a conventional option and a natural, at least one natural option for each thing, like, you know, coughs, colds, sore throats, ranging all the way to, like, you know, the more serious things, too, so... Uh, That's readily available, and um, my practice is in northern New Jersey. It's called the Whole Child Center, and for families that geographically for whom it makes sense, uh, we are a full-service primary care pediatric practice, Um, and if integrative care is your thing, um, we have um, five practitioners currently uh, as pediatricians and nurse practitioners all working together as a team uh, along with nurses, Um, and we have a number of different therapies that we offer in addition to regular pediatric care like yoga and Reiki and acupuncture and and other things too. So for those for whom it makes sense, uh, we'd love to see you.
0: Thank you so much. If you're loving listening to Larry and feel like this episode has been helpful for you and you think it will be helpful for other moms and dads, Please do drop a comment on iTunes. When iTunes sees that love, they bump up the podcast, and it means other moms and other families are going to get this really valuable information. So, thank you for listening and joining me and Dr. Lawrence Rosen talking about the health of our kids